Hi, and welcome to Kitty Talks, the podcast that shows you how to find and follow your purpose and build a life in alignment with your soul. I'm your host, Kitty Waters, a serial entrepreneur and coach, and I'm the founder of the Network for Transformational Leaders. The podcast shares inspirational life stories that empower you to create yours. Every week, I interview top thought leaders that share their life stories, giving you advice on how you can tune in to what you're really here to do. Please go to kittytalks.com and take the free Bliss Life Order and start creating a life you love today. Talks. We share inspirational life stories that empower you to create yours. And today I have with me a legend in the transformational industry, Chris Atwood. Hello. Hi, Kitty. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. I am incredibly excited about this conversation because it's so on point with what we are doing here at Kitty Talks. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Chris is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The Passion Test. Um, he and Janet Atwood have built a global brand with over 2,000 facilitators in 60 countries. So the passion test, I did the passion test. My goodness, it was such a great eye-opening experience for me, probably 50, 10, 15, 10 years ago, quite a while ago. But I remember it being so amazing because it literally helped me tune into what I enjoyed. And I kind of look at it as a real gateway for people into really discovering their dharma. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And you know what's so great about the passion test is it's very simple. It's simple and yet it helps you quickly get clear on what are the things that really matter most to you in your life. Which is something we're not taught. You know, it's not something that is embodied in our education system. It's something we kind of have to discover for ourselves. So yeah, absolutely amazing. But Chris, I would love you to tell us a little bit about your story for people listening. Like, you know, I would love to hear how you first transitioned into doing this work, if that's okay. Okay. So one always has the question, where do I start? But first, <laughs> let me say, Kitty, thank you for inviting me to be with you and to talk about the stuff that I love most. The, there's nothing that's more enjoyable for me. Uh, you know, my father was a Lutheran minister. My mother, as I was growing up, was a nurse and then a school nurse, and she later got her PhD and became a, a university professor and my dad retired and went on to become a, a, a high school teacher and then, and then a creative writer and various things. Um, but I grew up in this environment of nurse and, and Christian minister, right? And, uh, and so when I first came to university, uh, this, that's the background I came to. And the first year I was in university, which was a long time ago, the fall of 1969, uh, the the black students had taken over the student union at the at the college in a massive protest uh, the year before, and then I got there in October. In February, there was the first of three riots that erupted in the small wow. town of Isla Vista, right next to UC Santa Barbara, where I was going to school. And in that first riot, this huge building in the middle of the community called the Bank of America, which was surrounded by parking lots and and em empty fields was burned to the ground. And I remember standing on a street corner 
and uh, watching as a, a busload of police came in across the field and came marching across the field with their helmets and their shields and their batons and their, their bulletproof vests. And they came and lined up in front of this crowd of kids, uh, about 3,000 or so kids. And they, they had been told that there was someone in the bank, there, but it wasn't true. The bank was on fire at this point. And uh, so they lined up there, and then they'd rush the crowd, and then they'd beat up some of the kids, and blood was going, and it wasn't a very pretty sight. Mm. And, and, our, and the, the kids are throwing rocks and bottles and yelling terrible things. And the police, you know, the police were young kids also. In the for the most part, they were in their 20s and 30s. And you could see fear. You could see anger. You could see mm. hate on these faces. And I remember standing there and thinking, you know, I really don't want to live in a world like this. No. And so when those riots calmed down, there was a, a massive community development effort that arose in Isla Vista after that. And I became part of that. I was hired as the planning director for the Isla Vista Community Council, which was a, uh, an ad hoc group but, it, but it, basically the community came together and said, we need some representation and, and here's some candidates and let's elect some people to represent us to the state and the county and the university who are all concerned about what was going on in Isla Vista. And um, so I, I, at 20, no, how old was I then? 1972. Yeah, so at 20 years old, uh, I was hired as the planning director and for the Isla Vista Community Council, and I had a budget of about $300,000, which in today's dollars, that's almost $2 million in today's dollars. That's a big old budget. And it was. It, it was... Uh, it was granted by the university and the state who were trying, wanted to do something to, to calm everybody down, basically, yeah. you know? And so we did lots of cool things. We built barrier parks and we, we, we took empty land and bought it and, and, uh, and we made it into parks and we built benches and we had community days and we put up a community center. We did lots and lots of different things. And one of the things I did at that time was I, I, a few years later was to found something called the Isla Vista Food Co-op. It was a food cooperative mm -hmm. and we got, you know, we had a thousand, 10% of the community became members and everyone put in a small amount of money and then volunteered an hour a month. And I had this great vision for this co-op. I thought, you know, if we can just change the, the institutions in yeah. our society, if we can change the way people interact with each other and with the, the, the goods and services that are coming to them, then we can change the world. And, and the food co-op was going to be a model of how we could restructure the institutions to create better outcomes and more, more productive behavior. It was going great. You know, we started from zero, from scratch, and we put up shelves and walk-in and all these things. And we had food and people were buying it and volunteers were volunteering. And then about three months in, it was nighttime. The, uh, everything was dark. And we had a storefront of about 1,400 square feet, which is about you know, 130 square meters or something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it, the whole, all the lights were out except in my little office in the back where the sh light was shining. You can imagine me with my bookkeeper's specials. I didn't have that, but <laughs> I was doing the books for the co-op and I discovered that our volunteer cashiers were still stealing money from the cash register. And suddenly my great vision and my, my hopes and idealistic yeah. Uh, dreams for the future of mankind went, brrr, 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 brrr. and um, 
So when I when I had become uh, when I was hired as director uh, in Isla Vista, I was under a lot of stress, and I, I had indigestion, and I my skin was flaking off my face, and so a friend of mine had said, "Hey, you should try transcendental meditation. It's a great way of dealing with stress." And I thought, "Ah." That's what I need. I need something to deal with stress. And, mm. and at that time, there were a few studies that had been done on the effectiveness of TM, of the TM technique. And so I thought, ah, it doesn't seem like anything bad happened. So maybe I'll give it a try. So I had learned TM and I'd had great results, actually. The indigestion went away. I, I got confident. I accomplished great things in that it, while I was planning director and founded the co-op, among other things. And uh, so I'd been meditating for several years, but my meditation was all about how can I be more effective in changing the saving the world? You know, that was the thing. The world needs to be saved and I'm here to save it. Right. Yeah. And uh, and so but my meditation was to help me have more energy and to be clearer thinking and to get more done and all of that. Well, when this thing happened with the people stealing from the cash register, I realized that and it doesn't do any good to change things on the outside if the inside doesn't change. And I'm sure many people listening here have discovered that for themselves. But that was a big aha moment for me. And so uh, from that point on, my life really shifted. I ended up becoming a teacher of TM. I, I went and uh, ultimately I went through many different phases. I became you know, I ran a, a multi-million dollar restaurant, and then I became president of a, a government securities dealer. And, uh, and then I left and ended up spending 10 years in long meditation, going deep inside of myself, eight to 10 hours a day of meditation, studying the Vedic literature of India, this most ancient writings in, on our planet, and, and what they had to say about truth and who we are and why we're here and what the purpose of life is and all of that. And, uh, and that was really, that, that co-op experience, that was really the turning point for me. Mm. And, and then out of that, just to, to bring us up to the present as quickly as I can here, the, um, I, I left those 10 years and I was ready to be in a relationship. And I ended up marrying the woman you mentioned, Janet Bray Atwood. Janet and I were married for five years. It was a very difficult marriage for both of us. And, uh, and so we went through that challenge and we decided after five years being married wasn't the best relationship for us, but we knew we still loved each other. We still cared about each other. And so we chose to stay connected. And so about three or four years after our divorce, Janet called me up one day and said, hey, guess what? Mark Victor Hansen and Robert Allen, who are both number one New York Times bestselling authors, Mark Victor Hansen co-wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. Robert Allen wrote... Uh, um, uh, Nothing Down, and a number of other uh, New York Times bestselling books. And they were partnering to create a new book called The One Minute Millionaire. And uh, she said, they've asked me to partner with them, to create a new program with them. And I said, wow, that's fabulous. Congratulations, Janet. And so, so uh, I was all ready to just pat her on the back and send her on her way. But she said, oh, well, there's only one problem. You know, they want a business plan for me. And, you know, I don't do business plans. You do business plans. And... Uh, so could you please do it as a favor somehow? <laughs> so I said, so she said, the only You're thing is... Than you are. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. She said, the, the, the only thing is that they need the business plan in three days. And I said, Janet, you can't write a business plan in three days. But I'll tell you what, maybe... So she said, but please, 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 you know, maybe there's some way that we can do it. And so I said, well, maybe what we can do is we can uh, do an outline of a business plan for them. And so I did the outline. I sent it to Janet. And she said, well, I can't explain this to them. Will you come? I'm meeting them in Chicago 
and I was in California at this time. I'll fly you out and you can explain it to them, okay? And so I said, all right, fine. So <laughs> the, the way Janet and I became business partners is we were sitting at, the, at dinner that night and we were talking about halfway through dinner. Mark or Bob, one of them said, uh, so what's Chris's role in all of this? And so Janet kicks me under the table. That I had learned by now that means don't say anything. And, um, and she said, well, Chris and I are going to do this together. And of course, that was news to me at that moment, but, uh, but it turned out to be perfect timing. And uh, I was ready to leave what I had been doing, and Janet and I then became business partners. And out of that, we, we ended up, we spent a year working on the project with Mark and Bob, and then we partnered with Harv Ecker and helped him create uh, alliances for his programs and introduced him into the U.S. in a big way. And, uh, and then Janet had this inspiration to write the passion test, this little thing, test she invented many, many years before. And, and so we self-published it. Uh, actually, we, we published it as an ebook, And for a year, we did these um, calls like this. But at that time, it was teleseminars. And, we, and those were the days, this was like 2003, 2004. And those were the days when we'd have 3,000 people sign up for our teleseminar, and 1,500 people would show up for the call. So uh, they, that doesn't happen for me anymore, unfortunately, but, but that, those were great days. And, uh, and so as homework, we would send them reminders for the calls and we'd say, and one of the things you might want to do is, is to, for four and a half dollars, get a copy of the passion test. So you're prepared. So it's, you know, 93 page ebook at that point. Yeah. And so we sold 5,000 copies of the ebook that way. And then uh, Janet said, well, let's rewrite it. And so we rewrote the whole thing, and then we self-published it. We launched it twice in 2005. It went to number one on uh, Barnes & Noble in an hour and a half after we put it up in September 2005. And then uh, a day later, it went to number one on Amazon and stayed there for a week. And uh, we ended up getting a, a book deal with Penguin, and and the, and the passion testing course has done well. So the, uh, I, Janet and I were partners up until about a year and a half ago, or a little over that. At the end of 2015, then we split our business partnership because the passion test was hers, and I yeah. wanted her to be able to continue to have it, and I continued to consult with her on it. But I had this new dream for creating a community of global influencers anchored by beautiful five-star resorts in, in um, gorgeous places around the world, creating these things which I call the Bayul. And Bayul is a, an ancient Tibetan Buddhist term that means places where the truth of life is maintained. So mm. this is my focus these days. Wow. Wow, fantastic. And so when you look, because obviously that's an incredible, incredible story, but when, when you look back on your life, knowing what you know now, because obviously you've studied uh, life path and dharma, and is it, it almost like you and Janet were meant to come together? There was some kind of soul contract that, meant you to be married to enable you to do the kind of work that you do did together yeah so one of one of the things i sort of skipped over is that um there was a point in my life in the year 2000 when uh, janet it was asked to be the marketing director by a woman named byron katie and uh and so Kate, Janet asked me to come and check Katie out with her because she wasn't sure whether it was a good thing to do or not. And so I did that. And Katie had such a profound, you know, Katie is the creator of something called The Work. Mm. And, uh, wow. and Katie had such a profound effect on me personally that I went and spent a year living on her living room floor and, 
and uh, working with her and helping her and, and also doing the work a lot and, and undoing these beliefs. And one of the things that, that I learned from Katie and that I know without a shadow of a doubt is true these days is that, mm -hmm. one, there are no accidents in creation. Mm -hmm. Number two is that when, when I argue with reality, I lose and only 100% of the time. So were we meant to, to come together? Obviously, we were because we mm -hmm. did, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, is um, is there a path laid out for each of us? Uh, this is one of the age-old discussions of philosophers and and spiritual thinkers. You know, uh, do we have free will, or is our life determined, predetermined? And what I the conclusion that I've come to is whether life is predetermined or not. And there are many spiritual masters who will insist that it is. It doesn't serve us to, to live our life as if it was. What serves us is to live our life as if we have complete free will, and then to make choices based upon what we learn as we go through this life. So the, the, the thing, I, I, I th you, you invited me here, Kitty, because uh, we had, uh, I had mentioned to you that I have this Dharma, this course on Dharma, discovering Dharma that I have mentioned. And for me, what Dharma means, Dharma is a Sanskrit word, obviously, and to me, what it means is that it's that, that very force of nature which drives each of us to seek purpose and meaning in our lives. It's that, that, that thing that wells up within every one of us. And when, and when our lives don't feel meaningful, we feel incredibly unhappy. And when we feel that there's a purpose, when we feel that it's, there's a direction for our life that has meaning and 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 that we can can feel that there's some something worthwhile in what we're doing, then we feel joy. And, and what I've come to realize, Kitty, over time is that this is the nature of Dharma. When we're aligned with Dharma, we experience joy. When, we, when we're out of alignment with Dharma, the, uh, then we begin to suffer. It, the, now, I should say that we can be in alignment with Dharma and there still can be times where there's great progress and other times where it seems like there's lots of obstacles. The difference is how we respond. And so I would say there's one key to me to living this life of, 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 the, of this on this planet Earth that is critical to being able to enjoy it and live a fulfilled life. And that's how do we respond to those times which are not pleasant, those times when mm. there are challenges. Because mm. it's easy to fall in love with life when we're feeling great, right? And everything's going well. and Yeah, everything's yeah, going well, no problem. Yeah. Right. So what would but your advice be for somebody, somebody listening to this podcast now, you know, maybe that is their experience at the moment. Maybe they are coming through tough times. What would your advice be to those people? Yeah. So... The thing, we, we write about it in the Passion Test, and, and Janet and I refer to it as nature's guidance system, that we're, each of us is always being guided. And when there are those times where there are obstacles, challenges, where it seems like nothing is working, where, where everything is going haywire in our lives, that's a time to, to, to draw back. It's not a time to try and push through. And I know that there's this illusion in the West that, you know, no pain, no gain. We have to push on through. We have to force it through. And it's just, from my perspective, completely wrong. Dharma is not about force. Dharma is about flow. And, the, and so to be able to live in Dharma means that when times are good and you feel great, 
then that's like a green light. That's nature's signal to you. It's time to push ahead, time to take action, do it, strike like lightning in every direction. And when things are challenging and difficult, that's the time to pull back. If you're feeling a lot of emotional upset or discomfort, it's a time to nurture yourself, take care of yourself, be gentle with yourself, be easy with yourself. It's absolutely, it's a time to avoid to the extent you can beating yourself up and just realize this is just one of those times life goes through these ups and downs and this just happens to be one of these and it's going to go back up again. And so the most important thing to do when things are challenging is to just be easy and settled in yourself. Mm. When you when you really make this a practice, then actually those those so-called downtimes actually become recognized as an opportunity to rest, an opportunity to to do things, to play more with your children, to go out more with your friends, to to do things that maybe you don't have time to do when everything's going well and you're just kicking butt and doing great, you know. Mm. So the and so over time. One, one begins to see that the uptimes have their joy, which is about the outer expression of life. And the downtimes have their joy, which is about being restful and coming back to oneself, going within, being reflective. One, one line I'll give, and then I'll mm. stop talking for a minute. No, no, it's great. The, um, <laughs> is that, that any time there's a period of contraction, you know, I call these downtimes, periods of contraction, the uptimes, periods of expansion. And anytime there's a period of contraction, it means nature wants us to pull back. It wants us to, to go within. It's a time. So periods of contraction are always an opportunity to gain more clarity. That's really the essence of it. And so the best thing we can do is whatever it is that will allow us to get, gain more clarity. Good things to do when we're in challenging times is set a routine and go by it. Go to bed early. Get plenty of rest. If you have a meditation practice, do it regularly. If you have an exercise program, yourself, do it regularly. Yeah. If you... If you don't have an exercise program, then get one. You know, it's just, mm. it, the, it's not complicated. You know, this is the thing after so 45 years of meditation and diving into understanding purpose and dharma and what life is all about. The thing I, the conclusion I've come to, Kitty, is that life is not complicated. We make it complicated mm. with our thoughts, with our thinking. And so the biggest thing, the, the other piece I would say that we can do when things are challenging and difficult is find tools that will allow us to look at our own beliefs, the concepts that are making us miserable, because nothing out here can ever make you miserable. The only thing that ever makes you miserable is your thoughts up here. So find those tools that allow you to undo and unravel those beliefs, and then you'll find you can live in peace. And I think, you know, just follow building from what you were saying, you know, if you are listening and going through a tough time at the moment, like they pull back, like Chris is saying, take care of yourself, nurture yourself, but also look for the, the gift because, you know, I think that's an empowering way when we are going through difficult situations. If we try and look for what we're meant to learn or look for the gift in the situation, it tends, like you said, it alters your thinking and how you view what's happening in your life as such. Lean into it. It's true. And I have a little caution, a little warning for people about, about looking for the gift. Because I was taught this, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 um, and I remember uh, what I discovered. Here, here's what I discovered, Kitty, in my life, is that um, 
when we experience pain, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain or, or any other kind of spiritual pain, any kind of pain, the natural first response, I won't say natural, but our first initial knee-jerk response is get me out of here. <laughs> I don't want to experience this. <laughs> you know, How do I get rid of it? I don't want to feel this. You know, And so people who are not so awake, the way they, the way they stop the feeling is they drink or they smoke or they, they numb they out yeah. or they, they numb out. They, they watch television. They, some people work too much. Some people go shopping too much. You know, there are a lot, a lot of different ways that we can try and not have to feel what we're feeling. Okay? Mm. And, and what I discovered, because I'm a spiritual person, mm. what I discovered is that spiritual people have a tendency to to try and escape the pain by by looking for the gift before they felt the feelings. Mm, okay. So what I mean feelings. by that, yeah, that's the thing, is mm. that you're absolutely right. You want to find the gift, but before you go there, see, this is what I used to do, Kitty. I, I would be in a situation and I get really upset, and I, you know, whatever was going on inside of me. I, I'm not the kind of person that shows it so much outside, but mm. inside I was like, ah, you know, <laughs> it's terrible. Mm. And, um, and so what I would do is I would just say, I knew to come in, you know, I'd already gotten that. I knew to come in and, okay, let me just be with this. All right. You know, I know it's going to be okay. I know this is a gift. I know this is a learning experience. I just need to go through it. I, I started that as soon as I felt bad, you know? Yeah. And what I discovered is that I never allowed myself to sob or to, to, or to scream or to get angry, to, you know, to, not that you have to take that out on anyone, by the way. But, mm -hmm. but there's something, at some point, something went, wait, I can't do this. And so I allowed myself just to get a pillow and cry and bawl mm -hmm. my eyes out into the pillow. Or, or I would go outside into nature and i just scream at the top of my lungs, you know. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's done this, you know there's a certain cathartic effect that happens as a result of that. And, and what I learned is that it's absolutely critical to allow yourself to feel the feelings that are coming up as deeply and as completely as you can. And then once you've done that, there'll come a point where you, you feel, ah, it's, it's easing. It's not as bad as it was. Now, at that point, that's the time to what I call use the tools, one of which is what's the gift here? What can I learn from this? Another one, another tool might be the work of Byron Katie. What is the thought that's causing me to be so unhappy right now? How can I, and then to investigate that thought. And there are lots of anything, I call a tool, anything that helps you get into a more expanded space that helps you feel better. So it might be in the short term, it might be getting exercise. It might be meditating. It might be praying. It might be reading some inspiring book. But ultimately, if we want to be able to grow from that experience, I agree with you 100%, Kitty, is that then as we look back on it, what was the gift? How did that really serve me to move forward in my life? My only caution is that please, 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 everybody, allow yourself to feel these feelings oh. as painful as they may be. I'm Chris, I'm totally with you. That is my my journey has been to do exactly that, is to totally yeah, learn to feel because that was what I didn't right. do for years, basically. And so yeah. Um Lee, when I said lean into No offense intended, no offense <laughs> intended, but but the British Oh, are really good shocking. at covering up their feelings, you know? Oh, we are stiff upper lip, you know, totally. Yeah, that's it. You know, totally. It's in our, you know, it's so genetically inbred in us, you know, our families and you do not show emotion. Crying, for me, crying was weak. 
you know so yeah yeah exactly. yeah, yeah great so we have to kind of break out of these Chose these it. concepts and beliefs because it's it's in feeling those feelings that the healing actually begins to take place the gift well exactly by leaning into it and feeling and letting it flow through you rather than blocking it which is what we so many of us do and like you said numb out and you know, so many people are experiencing depression and anxiety. And I, I you know, totally believe that's because they're not, they're not unblocked. They're blocked up, you know, with their emotions. Well, and cancer and heart disease ah. and autoimmune diseases. All of these things are a function of people stuffing their feelings, you know. Mm. So you, you kind of explained in your story and you said that, you know, recently you've kind of, you're going a slightly different direction, obviously, from Janet. You're not business partners anymore. And now your work is putting together everything by the sounds of things in your life, you know, your 45 year meditation practice, 10 years studying the Vedic texts, all of your experience with the passion test. And obviously now you're teaching people how to understand and discover their Dharma, which is when I read what you were doing, I was like, you must come and talk to us. So tell us a little bit more about that, what you're doing now. Yeah. So I'm teaching a course called discovering Dharma and, um, and it's a piece of the larger picture that I mentioned, the Bayul. Because okay? the, the Bayul, as I mentioned, the, this Tibetan Buddhist term means where the truth of life is maintained. So this is the title. The, the, the whole thing is the Bayul, where the truth of life is maintained. And so for me, a fundamental aspect of the truth of life is this aspect, which I call Dharma. Dharma being that force of nature that drives us toward a life of meaning and purpose. And what I've learned in my life, Kitty, and, and it probably doesn't come as a big surprise, but that every single one of us is born with a unique purpose, a unique role to play in this drama of life that we find ourselves in the midst of. That drama is unfolding. And uh, the, the Course on Dharma describes Dharma as, a, as an aspect of consciousness, this fundamental field of life that allows us to be conscious, allows us to have conscious experiences. And the, the Dharma is that flow of life that is directing every aspect of life, individually and collectively, toward greater and greater experiences of joy in the long term. In the short term, in any individual life or in the life of a society, there may be great suffering, great challenges, great difficulties. But Dharma is fundamentally that which, which comes out of the human spirit and says, I, I'm not going to stand for that anymore. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to change that which is unfair, unjust, immoral, unethical, you know, all of those things. I'm going to, I, I want in my life individually or in the collective life, however it shows up for us, that, uh, that we, we choose to live a life that, um, that, has, that has meaning, that, that feels purposeful. And so one of the things that Janet and I learned early on as we dove into the passion test is that when you make consistent choices in favor of the things that you love most, the things that, you, that matter most to you in your life, then you begin to find that things that you couldn't have imagined begin to show up, that people, places, things uh, appear that you could never have predicted in advance. And you were asking me, you know, I, I described this long journey of mine, you know, and that's really been true for me throughout my life is that when I didn't choose in favor of passion, I went through five jobs, one after the other. I was miserable in every single one of them, mm -hmm. even though they had fancy titles and even in most cases paid me quite well. 
but I was ter- I was awfully, awfully unhappy. I was just, I could hardly drag myself into work every day. Mm. And then when that shifted and I began to make choices based upon what I love, what I care about, what matters to me in my life, the whole thing completely changed and, and stuff happened. An example, you know, Janet and I, of course, the whole partnership with Janet is something I could never have predicted. You know, here I divorced my wife. Now I'm going to become her business partner. Uh, where, how does that happen? You know, and 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 the way it happened, it happened over dinner in a, in a Chicago restaurant. You know, 1,500 miles from home by by a sort of off the cuff comment. Right? Yeah. I could never have orchestrated that. But also a few years later, when uh, Janet and I actually. You know, as entrepreneurs, as I'm sure you know, Kitty, our finances tend to go like this as well, right? Yeah. And so there were times where we were doing well and times when it wasn't. And so there was a time when it wasn't and we said, well, we need to do something. So we created, we, we'd always had some skill and some success uh, in creating alliances. In fact, we named our company Enlightened Alliances. Mm. And, and so we, we put together a program called Alliance Secrets to teach what, what did we learn? What had we learned about how do you create great, powerful alliances with other business people and other partners? And uh, we had a bunch of people signed up for that course. And one of them was this woman in Australia. And uh, she, sometime while the course was going on, she called me up and, she, and I took her call because she was one of the students. She yeah. said, hi. Um, Hi, Chris. This is uh, this is Rhonda Byrne, and I just arrived in America, and uh, and you know I'm one of the students in your course, but I, I'm going to be interviewing people for a movie, and I know this movie is going to change the world, and I'd really like to have you and Janet involved. Would that be possible? And uh, and I had no idea who Rhonda was, but she really had a good story. Yeah. And and so Beautiful I asked her. Yeah. Is there anything that that I that uh, I can see? about this movie. And so she said, well, we have a trailer. It's almost done. And so she sent me the trailer. And the trailer blew our socks off. You know, I mean, it was just, it was amazing. In my opinion, no offense to the secret, but it was much better than the movie. But the, but it's the, but the trailer was amazing. And so we said, well, look, you know, let us help you uh, arrange some of the interviews. That's really part of what she was asking for is arrange some of the interviews. And so um, we started calling up friends and colleagues and the Transformational Leadership Council was about a year old at this point. Janet right. had been one of the original founders with Jack Canfield, founding members with Jack, and uh, and with your friend, Marsha Martin. Mm-hmm. And so I called up Jack, and Janet called up Marsha, mm-hmm. and we said, you know, there's this amazing woman, and she wants to do interviews, and um, could she come to Aspen, which are, was our next meeting, and interview some of the TLC members? And so Jack said, well, I, let me talk to some people. And Marcia said, well, let me talk to Jack. And so they talked. And, and I think Marcia had a big role in convincing Jack that it was worthwhile to do. Yeah, I think and, he nearly uh, vetoed it. And she told him, no, do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, um, and so Rhonda ended up coming to, to uh, that to Aspen and filmed many of the TLC members there. And then Janet and I also then arranged a whole bunch of other interviews for Rhonda with Michael Beckwith and which, with a bunch of people that she ended up not using in the movie, mm-hmm. Mark Victor Hansen and Jay Abraham and Harvecker and, and others. But, um, the, but we, it, uh, when it was all said and done, we had arranged about 70% of the interviews. If you count TLC among those, we'd arranged yeah. about 70% of the interviews that, that Rhonda ended up doing. And, 
how would I have predicted that? You know? No. Uh, and how do how because obviously that's an amazing synchronicity. And what you're kind of describing is when you're on your dharmic path, that things just flow and that like you said, they're so left field that you couldn't have imagined them. And actually, you know, you should trust your your dharmic soul path because it knows best. How do they get... Well, here's the biggest problem Mm. that all of us face, Kitty, Mm. is that we have this idea that I can control my life. Mm. You know, we have this idea that I can I can make sure that I have safety and security. I can make sure that that I don't get hurt, you know, and, and all of it is an illusion. The truth is that uh, and Robert Allen, this is one of the things that really attracted me to Bob Allen is that he, he would always say, you know, that that uh, Mark Fixter Hansen said most people have a job just over broke, you know, and then Bob yes. would get up and he'd say, yeah, and, and we have a choice. The, there's a there's a, there's two doors that we can choose from. We can choose the door of safety and security, or we can do, choose the door of abundance or something. I forget what he called the other door. And uh, and the and when you go for safety and security, you'll discover that you don't get either safety and security mm-hmm. or abundance. But when you go for abundance, you get safety and security too. So um, they <laughs> really the the biggest thing that anyone can do. To, mm. That will that will be the the block, the obstacle that they can't get around in terms of living their dharma and fulfilling their purpose in life mm-hmm. is to try and control their life. Mm. You know, the 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 most important and valuable thing we can do, in my opinion and in my direct experience, mm. is is there are three things that we can do. Yeah, if it's all right, I'll share them in these yes, last. Number one is to have a regular practice of of going within. Yeah. Uh, a meditation practice or whether walking in nature. Or, but whenever we have the experience of awe or wonder, we're tapping into that field of the infinite, that field of pure consciousness that's at the basis of every human experience. And and so, and so, this is why TM has been such an important part of my life. Transcendental meditation is a systematic way twice a day to be able to do that. But there are lots of ways that people can do that. So find a path, find a method that works for you, that allows you to regularly, systematically, on a daily basis if possible, dive to that field of peace and calm that exists within each of us. The second thing is find a tool that works for you to investigate and question your beliefs. The best thing that anyone can do is to disbelieve your thoughts. When we believe our thoughts, that's when we get into trouble. That's when we try and control. That's when we try and that's when we resist the flow that's moving through us at the moment. So find a way. For me, it was the work of Byron Katie. And uh, and I strongly recommend it for anyone who is suffering in life. And, and is that to third- undo your conditioning and undo your patterning and, and any negative stuff that's holding you back? Is that what you yeah. mean? conditioning and patterning all show up as thoughts Mm. and so the easiest way to think about it is if you question your thoughts Mm -hmm. then you're questioning the conditioning you're questioning the you're breaking the hold of the patterns and what what people discover and certainly what i discovered is when you do a simple tool a simple process like the work and again the things i'm suggesting the reason i like them is because they're all simple they're all easy they're all effortless to do you know Katie's process is four four questions and what she calls a turnaround. And and what I discovered is that when I began doing that, it didn't take very long before it just became a habit. And I it became impossible. The first question is is, is 
the first question is, yeah. is it true? Second mm. question, can you absolutely know that it's true? Well, I found myself making a statement like, I think I'll go to lunch. And I say, well, is that true? Hmm. <laughs> now, that may seem ridiculous to people, and that is a kind of a ridiculous example. But for me, being who I am and being sort of esoteric anyway, the questioning of whether I can go to lunch and whether there's an I here that can go to lunch was a really relevant question. <laughs> but for most people, for most people, if you say, well, my husband should, should be more thoughtful, my husband should listen to me. Well, is that true? Can you absolutely know that that's true? And how do you react when you have the thought that you should, your husband should listen to you and he doesn't? Hmm. And, and then who would you be without the thought that your husband should listen to you when he's not listening to you? you know? Maybe you'd have compassion for him. Maybe hmm. you'd be thinking about how he's completely overwhelmed at work and it's not even possible for him to listen right now because he's, hmm. he's under so much pressure. So really becoming conscious of what you're thinking rather than just being in reaction. Yeah. So, but, but the, but really the essence of it is find tools, whatever the tool may be that can allow you to question the things that you have taken for granted. And then the yeah. third thing you've already mentioned, which is find a tool. The passion test is a great one, but find yeah. a tool that will help you clarify what is most important to you in your life and then begin consistently making decisions based upon those things. What will bring you closer to what you care about most? Mm. Wonderful. Wonderful. Fantastic. So how can people find out more uh, or find you and where can they find out more about what you're doing, Chris? Yeah. So the easiest way is go to discoveringdharma.com. Discovering. Dharma is D as in Dorothy, D as in Delta, D-H-A-R-M-A, D-H-A-R-M-A. So discoveringdharma.com. And People who go there will find that the, you can get an essay that I wrote on the, on the nature of Dharma. It really, from my perspective, it's 1,500 words that contain all, whatever wisdom I've gained in this life, it's all there in that essay, and I give it away for free there. Mm, and I, having read it, I would really recommend people to read it, because there were some real, really simple gifts in there. Like the one I loved was that, that being in alignment with your Dharma is a single key to freedom from stress and everything else, and it kind of... No, I really took that away from me. So, yeah, I would really encourage people to um, to read the essay that Chris has written. And we will have all of his details in the show notes. So if you just missed what he said, don't worry. We will have all of the details there for you. But I want to thank you so much, Chris. Um, you. You know, for me personally, to meet, to meet you, because obviously, you know, you've been in my sphere of influence for quite a while. And I've always heard people say such wonderful things about you. And now having met you, I can see why. So... <laughs> But, yeah yeah thank you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom and for you know for people listening um chris's work is more you know more evidence for you listening that you know you're listening to all these life stories you're listening to people who are finding and following their dharma that is available for you and obviously our community is there to support you in that as well so chris thank you once again thank you kitty and we will see you again next week on kitty talks bye-bye Thank you so much for listening to Kitty Talks. Be sure to head over to our kittytalks.com website and become a member of our exclusive club and you'll get free interviews and access to our private Facebook group. Exclusive webinars and secret success interviews. See you there.